Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Before diving into today's topic, I just thought I'd share a couple of things. The first thing I wanted to share is a thank you to everyone that filled out my Grad School Fem Touring Podcast listener survey. I've had uh, the chance to review your feedback and I was pleasantly surprised to hear from you that a lot of you really enjoy my solo episodes. That means a lot to me because I also really enjoy recording them. And sometimes I wonder if my listeners want to hear more from guests rather than from me. Uh, but because I enjoy them so much, I keep putting them out. So one guest episode, one solo episode, I tend to um, vacillate between them every week. And I've heard from you, a lot of you ha enjoy my how-to episodes, you enjoy anything related to my application cycle tips, anything related to uh, productivity tips, time management, self-care, mental health is a big one. I've heard from folks who say they want to hear more about, about mental health and about navigating family expectations. Folks want to hear more about burnout and how to cope with it. And um, so overall, thank you for filling it out. Thank you for letting me know that you're listening, letting me know that you like what I have to say. You like my tips, you like my insights. And actually, if you really enjoy my solo episodes and you want to hear more, um, more tips, more insights, more reflections on these types of topics, I want to suggest that you sign up for my email newsletter I don't spam people. I email people once every two weeks and it's really just my own writing, my own reflections, my own musings on what I'm learning, on observations that I'm making, on conversations that I'm having, on things that I'm noticing from interviewing people, from being interviewed, from working with my clients. And that's where I specifically center grad school sustainable productivity, and personal development. There's a link to sign up for my newsletter um, in today's show notes. So if you're interested, sign up. You can unsubscribe at any time. No big deal. Um, but I, I do, I'm putting a lot of kind of thought into my writing that I put out there every other week. And so again, if you like my solo episodes, there's a good chance you're going to like my newsletter too. So sign up for that. And then the other thing I wanted to share before today's episode is a review that I received recently. Just want to remind you all that I am actively seeking honest reviews for my podcast. I know there's a good amount of you that listen to my podcast episode every week. I know this because I get the stats and it actually helps a lot when you leave a review. And for the time being, if you leave a review... I offer a free half hour coaching session. In fact, I'm having one this coming week with someone who left a review. So if you need insights, advice, you want someone to talk to about any topic, 
um, related to navigating grad school, then definitely leave a review and contact me, email me, gradschoolfemturing at gmail.com. Um, the review that I recently received is from Dr. Emanuela. And in it, she says, valuable resource. Dr. Yvette is a wealth of knowledge for first-gen college students. She shares valuable advice and does so in a thoughtful and approachable way. You should definitely subscribe if you're first-gen students. Thank you, Dr. Emanuela. It means a lot to get this review from a fellow podcaster, from a fellow coach and consultant. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. All right, y'all. That's all I have to say before diving into the episode topic. I am bringing in this topic of law school because it's long overdue. I've had people ask me about law school for so many years and I always turn them away and I say, I am not the one to talk to about law school. I have not gone to law school. I do not know a lot about law school. I know a lot about master's and doctoral programs, particularly PhD programs, EDD programs. That's what I know. But I thought I'd bring in a guest who does know about law school, who does have that experience, who does teach and is a professor, teaches law in law school, to talk to you to answer some basic questions about it. So if you've been curious about law school, if you want to learn more, you want to get a head start, check out today's episode. It's not going to be the only one. I will have a couple more that are lined up in uh, 2023. So be on the lookout and yeah, let me know what you think. Okay. All right. Let's go straight to the episode. Welcome back everyone to the grad school femme touring podcast. This is your host, Dr. Yvette. And today I have an episode that's a little different from my former episodes. Today we're going to be talking about law school and everything you need to know if you're considering a career in law. I know this comes up sometimes for folks you're not sure. And I'm really excited because we have a special guest. Her name is Sydney Mack. Sydney is an experienced sports media and entertainment attorney, law professor, and podcast host of the Sugar Free Podcast with a heart for service and a flair for the dramatic. She hopes to change. No, no, no. She is changing the world through artful storytelling, impeccable communication, and real honest conversations. Welcome to the podcast, Sydney. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I, I'm delayed, delighted that you were able to come on the show today to talk to us all about your experience and also your knowledge and your wisdom all about law school and law careers. So tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. For folks who may not be aware, would like to get to know a little bit more about your backstory too. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm an attorney. Um, I practice, I would say historically, primarily in sports and entertainment, but the way that the world is changing, I find myself getting more and more into media and tech in addition to traditional sports and entertainment. Um, but I actually came to law school because I wanted to be an agent. Ooh. And I feel like 
a lot of people who are interested in sports and entertainment, they think that they're going to go the agency route. And so I was a division one athlete in college. But outside of that, I also grew up singing, dancing, acting like it was my my initial goal was to be the sixth member of Danity Kane. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> Before I, you know, decided I was going to be a lawyer, but I wanted to sing, I wanted to dance, I wanted to act like that's what I wanted to do. And y'all know, y'all, we had like the Diddy making the band. And so funnily <laughs> enough, I was of age when the first round of like auditions came about. <clears throat> I didn't do it. And then I saw like a couple of years ago that Diddy had a new making the band audition. Like they were trying to bring it back pre-COVID. I yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> and my sister was like, now it's your shot. Like you can audition. And I was like, do they really want a 30 something <laughs> woman in the group now? Like, is it too late? Because I mean, I feel like I look good for, for 30 something woman. Mm -hmm. But I don't look good for an 18-year-old, you know, in, in a group. They're really young. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I look that good. Like, I don't want to look like the old fat lady in the back. Like, so I, I didn't audition. Long story short, I didn't audition. But that was kind of like my my plan in life was to. And I used to sing like at state fairs, old folks homes, malls, like typical behind the scenes, behind the music. I had my mom keep all my old tapes you know, for when I get big one day. <laughs> so that was my goal. And then I feel like when you are a creative person or you're an athlete, you kind of, unless you are Serena Williams level talented, there's always some doubt about whether or not you're going to make it. And so I feel like people encourage you to to pursue your dreams, but then they also encourage you to have a backup plan. And right. I, I understand the rationale behind having a backup plan because the reality is that most people aren't going to make it big. But for those small like number of people who actually might have the talent, you might actually be getting in the way of them being all that they can be because you can focus too much on your backup plan that you don't put enough emphasis or energy into plan a and so I started putting more emphasis and energy into my backup plan I see <laughs> um, so was the agent thing the backup plan or was that the main plan oh that, that was, was the backup, the backup plan. that oh. was the backup plan the main plan was to really be the sixth member of Danity Kane like I wanted to be the talent mm -hmm. but since I was like, I don't know if I'll be able to make it as the talent, either as an athlete or a performer. I was like, what can I do to still be in the industry and be a part of the scene, be a part of the talent's community without actually having to be the talent? So being an agent was my backup plan. I see. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm just thinking about that in relation because I have a theater background and when I realized I don't know if I'm going to be able to act <laughs> for the rest of my life <laughs> I considered the directing and stage managing route as that that backup plan and then after that the backup of the backup was becoming a theater <laughs> professor <laughs> and now I'm doing none of the backup plans but that is that is um thank you for sh shedding light on that because 
it just shows you how your career can go on so many different kind of tracks because you started, you know, with this career in, in entertainment and then becoming an agent. And then at what point did you realize I, I want to become, or I want to, um, yeah, become a lawyer, an attorney. So I went to law school still with the plan of being an agent. So the primary role of an agent is to seek out deals for their clients, but then to also negotiate those deals and contracts. So it's not a requirement that you be an attorney to be an agent, but a lot of agents are attorneys, especially the top ones. So I went to law school still okay. with the desire to be an agent. I just wanted to have the certification because I really didn't know anything about contracts. So nobody in my family um, was in the entertainment business or industry like when I was growing up, my siblings are now in the industry, but, but like when I was younger, it's not like I had, you know, family that I could say, Hey, could you help me figure out how to navigate negotiating contracts? And I feel like for a lot of us, us being women of color who are the first in our families or the first to do something in our families, yeah. we have to, or we feel like we have to take on the the burden of going to school to get the education because we feel like that is the best way for us to get the knowledge and information versus let's say I had, you know, a family member or a close friend or family member or a network that could support me being an agent without going to school. Maybe I could have shadowed, maybe I could have apprenticed someone um, in the field or like a family member could have made a connection that maybe would have made school less important. But since I didn't have that, I went ahead and went to law school to pursue the agency route. Um, and then I developed, like you mentioned, a backup for my backup. So one of my mentors, who's a very successful sports attorney for, um, he works like on the team side. He mm -hmm. was like, there's not a lot of money in being an agent unless you represent the top athletes mm. and so he was like if you're not going to be representing the LeBron James of the world like you need to go on the team side and so he kind of encouraged me to push that route and so that's when I was like okay I guess I'll go on the team side <laughs> like I'll go on the corporate side versus representing the athlete and so that's how I kind of got started on that path and um, when I came out of law school we were still in the throes of the economic downturn, the the previous one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not the pending maybe gonna happen. Not sure what's going on when we have right now. Um the actual <laughs> yeah. one that was lingering from two thousand from two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yeah. So that that was like during a time when law firms were rescinding job offers. That was a time when uh, law firms weren't hiring. And so I actually had a uh, opportunity to go to a top 20 law school, um, went to a very prestigious law school. And even the top people in my class were not getting jobs or not wow. getting paying jobs. Um, also during that time, I feel like a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of the top law schools in order to ensure that their graduates had employment post-graduation, we're sponsoring unpaid employment opportunities for up to three years. What does that mean? That means you get a job, <laughs> but you're not getting paid? 
what it was. So if you found oh, that, oh, they were paying on behalf of the folks who were sponsoring. I mean, they were the sponsors Boom. on behalf of the folks providing the jobs. <laughs> Boom. So if you, let's say, could find a public sector unpaid job as, let's say, like a court clerk or a public defender or Ooh. something like that, because even pu even public defenders and DA's offices were rescinding job offers at that time. Wow. You weren't employing people. Um, a friend told me just the other day that someone in her class had their offer at the DA's office, right? This is public servitude for five years there. Um, it was like their job offer from the DA's office was like pushed out for five years and they told them report back in five years and they did and they honored that but it was mm -hmm. like that that's how bad it was of a recession yeah. in the legal market and so yeah it was basically like if you found a job somewhere like they were willing to train you they called it an apprentice program yeah. if you found somewhere that they were willing to train you but they weren't willing to pay you we will pay your salary mm -hmm for up to like three years and so that's how bad it was at that particular time and so even though my goal was to be on the team side I didn't there were no jobs available mm -hmm. I to say like there were no jobs available so I actually started my career in the DA's office and then I was a state court clerk for a state court judge and then after that I ended up starting my own firm because it turns out I, I'm not a good state court clerk. Who knew? And I'm really my ministry. And so it wasn't working out. <laughs> I don't think that I was doing my best. and They probably weren't feeling me either. So I ended up getting fired. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Trying to find a job is difficult. And one of my friends was like, you should just open up your own law firm. And I was like, that seems super scary, <laughs> you know, in general, but definitely right now. But I really didn't have anything else going on. And I didn't want there to be a gap in my resume. So I started my own law firm and I made it a sports and entertainment law firm. I was like, well, wow. if I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> if I'm going to just be out here, I may as well do what I want to do. And so that's what I did. And um, because of the connections and the relationships that I had from dancing, singing, acting my whole life, from being a division one athlete, I actually was able to get clients from day one in that vein. And so some of my first clients were athletes were you know entertainers people that I knew and sports companies like it was it, it went like way better than I thought but I still didn't enjoy it um just because and you probably know this having your own business but running a business is hard yeah <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a dream that I had it wasn't a plan that I had it's not like every day growing up I was like oh I'm gonna I'm be entrepreneur I'm gonna run my own business like that wasn't that wasn't really what I wanted to do and so it afforded me an opportunity to get my feet wet in an area of the law that I wanted to be in but as soon as I kind of had an opportunity to go in-house I did and so after that I landed my first in-house role at a large sports media and entertainment company. And so that kind of like launched my, my career in sports, arts, and entertainment. But before that, while I still had my own firm, I also started teaching sports um, law at law school. And so also started doing that. 
and like the rest, I guess, is just kind of history. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> I love how everything kind of just, when you say it, when you tell the story of how things go, it's, it feels like things just fell into place. I'm sure living it, it did not feel that way. <laughs> But nope. <laughs> uh, but it's just interesting <laughs> one thing led to the other to the other, and here you are now. So for folks who are listening to you, and and they are, you know, still in the very very early stages. So we've got some folks who are in in college right now who listen to the episode, and they might be considering law school. And they want to know a little bit more about it. So can you give us a little bit of the one hundred and one about like what is law school? And what types of careers does it prepare you for? Because I had no idea that agents, uh, that, that a good number of agents are attorneys and have law degrees. Uh, so you're teaching me something too. So if you could share a little bit more about, you know, what is law school and, you know, the wide range of, of careers that might be available with, with that degree. Okay. So for that particular question, like what specifically do you want to know? Like, do you want to know like what classes you have to take or the process for getting in or like, like, is there something specific yeah, like, you want to so know? Yeah, like, so who or should just... be considering like going to law school and then gotcha. the actual law okay. school process, like, um, you know, okay. what does it look like? I know that it's three years. What happens in those three okay. years? Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, I mean... Who should be considering law school is a really difficult question to answer. Um, I think that as a practitioner and as a professor, I get that question often, but it's it's difficult for me to answer because I'm not the one that's going to have to take on the responsibility of going to law school (laughs) or the debt potentially. And if even if you have the cash, right, the investment, the financial investment required to go to law school. Um, So it's difficult for me to answer. I know that there's a lot of attorneys out there who tell people don't go to law school. It's awful. Like you can't make a living from it. Like you can't. And then there are some people out there who absolutely love the law and can't imagine doing them, imagine themselves doing something else. So I'll say this about that. If you feel like going to law school is something that you need to do, then then you should go for it. I, I think that there are plenty of people who go to law school for all the wrong reasons, but it was an itch they felt like they needed to scratch. And so mm-hmm. I'm team, don't go to your grave with regrets. <laughs> like, and I, I personally, like would re- some people would rather take on the debt, say they've done it because it was a personal goal or accomplishment that they had, than not going, doing what they felt like was the fiscally prudent thing to do by not going. And then in the back of their mind, they're like, I always wanted to be a lawyer, right? I don't know how many people always come to, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I feel like that particular question is a very individual and uh, Mm -hmm. subjective inquiry that is difficult for me to answer. I think that if you, who should go to law school in terms of it making the most financial sense, the people who need a law degree in order to do the job that they want to do. But I think the legal profession is changing a lot. And so that is a little bit nuanced as well at this point too. So I'll give you an example. Um, Because of technology um, and automation, your everyday neighborhood lawyer used to be the go-to person, let's say for 
filing or establishing a business entity, Mm -hmm. right? Because that information wasn't readily accessible for filing a trademark application, filing a copyright application, drafting a will. But now we have so many like do-it-yourself forms. Everybody, including the state court clerk's office, has a website. And so a lot of the things that used to be reserved for your average everyday neighborhood lawyer, many people are doing on their own. So in terms of like what you need a law degree to do, that is not as clear anymore. I think that the one thing that you absolutely need a law degree for is litigating. If Mm -hmm. you want to be a litigator and you want to be in the courtroom, then you absolutely need a law degree. But I mean, we just, we just had a president in the, you know, of the United States who didn't have a law degree and he's not the first or only to George Bush. George W. didn't have a law degree. He had a, I think he had a, um, Harvard MBA, but right. Like these things that are so entrenched in our government, we think like, Oh, our politicians have law degrees. Many of them don't, (laughs) you know what I mean? There are judges out there without law degrees. And so (laughs) again, that's news to me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a preferred qualification, Mm -hmm. but it's not a strict requirement. And so I think it requires some research to determine, you know, what you want to do and what those requirements are. But depending on who you are and who you know, the requirements can be flexible or, you know, Mm -hmm. the preferred qualification, the requirements not flexible, but the preferred qualifications can be flexible. And so at this point in time, I felt like if you want to be a litigator, yes, Mm -hmm. even in house, like many of the business people that I work with these days are incredibly sophisticated and know their way around a contract like very well. And so I'm not going to say that the necessity of a corporate lawyer isn't still there, but you, if you just want to negotiate contracts or if you want to be a negotiator, you don't have to be an attorney to do that on behalf of a corporation. Like for most of the deals that I negotiate, I'm working hand in hand with non-lawyers for every step of the deal. So you really just need to think about what it is you want to do and how important it is to you if you just if you just want to hang a very expensive piece of paper on your wall cool go for it um <laughs> i mean i know i um i usually offer very similar advice when it comes to graduate school i say don't go unless it is absolutely necessary for the career that you're interested in or if you know you will regret it because it's something you've just always wanted to do but also consider the numbers and consider the debt and consider how that's going to make an impact on your like life goals that you want to achieve so and you know you mentioned that we I think a lot of a lot of us know that law school is expensive but I'm curious if there are you know any ways to reduce that like scholarships or I know like folks can you know everybody everybody's financial background is different but in in my case like the the folks that, that are listening are predominantly low-income, working-class folks. That's the background. So are there scholarships? Are there fellowships? Anything that they can get to yeah. minimize that, that load? Okay, so I'm going to answer that question in two parts because I feel like I didn't fully answer your first question yet. Okay. So I'm going to try to weave in some more of the the <laughs> that too. Yes. So to start from the process for entering into law school. So 
like many other graduate programs, there are law schools out there that are rethinking their um, standardized testing requirement. So typically to get into law school, you have to take an exam called the LSAT, um, with the, which is the law school admissions test. And you have to generally have a personal statement. Um, you have to submit your undergraduate transcripts. And then you have to have a couple of letters of recommendation. And then there may be like an, a, a diversity addenda or something that some schools will allow you to attach. Or, But generally, it's like a standard application package and process that I will say is fairly subjective like schools will have and this is probably standard across all graduate programs but they'll have like a target score of like okay the 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 average let's say school will have like a median LSAT score of 165 meaning like the average student that gets in admitted into this particular school is a 165 and then they have like maybe a 3.8 GPA so that you can kind of have your measurements for or kind of like your standards for where you you should be in order to have a shot at admissions into that particular law school. With the caveat that there are people who have above 165 LSATs and above 3.8 GPAs who aren't admitted. And then you also have people who are lower than 165 LSATs and lower than 3.8 GPAs who are also admitted. Mm -hmm. I think that and and it's it's not necessarily race specific, but I think that there is a sliding scale for median standards and metrics for persons of color. Um, recognizing that standardized tests often come with certain biases. Right. Um, and so to account for that, like for example, the I think the median LSAT score for the school that I was admitted to during the time when I was admitted was 165. I had a 150. I had a 3.8 GPA. So the GPA was there. Mm -hmm. The LSAT wasn't as strong. I had a strong, um, what's the, the essay? Your, I had a strong yeah, essay, personal, personal, yeah, personal statement. statement. Yeah. I had some good letters of recommendation. I also was a pest. So a lot of people don't know this, but I they tell you don't do this, but I called the school every day. <laughs> <laughs> they'll remember you people say I don't want to bug I'm like no you want them to remember your name <laughs> you do so they yeah. tell you because they don't want to be bombarded with calls but yeah. I literally called the woman in admissions every day she was my best friend I do not think I would have gotten into that school without her so I actually I'll tell the story so I actually got into the school off the wait list and when they called me I was currently on a visit at another top law school that had already offered me admission and a scholarship. So I'll get to the scholarship portion nice. in a second. They had already offered me 50% scholarship as well as admission. They called and said, hey, we can offer you a spot on the wait list. And I was like, well, no, no, no. Actually, I called her for our weekly chat. They hadn't even sent me any information about we being on the wait list yet. I called her and I was like, hey, girl, I'm here. Like my parents are pressuring me to put a seat deposit down here because they've already offered me money like what's the deal before I put my deposit down and she was like well okay I'm gonna tell you that you're on the wait list like you're they're gonna offer you a spot on the priority wait list and I was like I was okay. I was devastated yeah. I was devastated because to me I heard I didn't get in yeah. and she was like she like counseled me through it she was like no girl this is the priority wait list 
once people like that first wave of people who do not accept a seat in that next year's class, like the priority wait list is immediately offered. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that as a first gen student, I didn't know that I was like, well, do they offer scholarships to people on the priority wait list? Because my mama said, if they don't offer me no money, I can't go. And she was like, actually, you have a higher chance of getting a scholarship from the priority wait list than if you were like a late round accepted because right. the because the people who are in the class mm -hmm. who decline their offers who have scholarships that scholarship money is now freed up so she was like just she was like all you have to do is accept your seat on the wait list and I was like I don't know. She was like, just what have you got to lose? Just just all you have to do is tell me you accept it and I can put you on the wait list. So I was like, fine, whatever. Literally three weeks later, they called, offered me a seat in the class with a 50 percent scholarship. So that's how I ended up getting into the school. And so I like to tell that story, too, because back to your question about scholarships. So typically the best shot at getting enough money <laughs> to pay for law school is to earn a merit scholarship from the institution itself. Yeah. It's not like undergrad where, you know, you probably have opportunities to piece together a bunch of, bunch of little scholarships from the local church and, you know, your, your mama's sorority, you know, whatever, whoever little people giving out scholarships, <laughs> you can maybe piece together enough to put it together and you'll be all right. The best shot that you have at getting a scholarship that's going to be put a dent in your tuition obligation is to earn a merit scholarship from the institution at which you are applying to. And so they typically will award merit scholarships upon acceptance based upon your application. So there's generally nothing additional that you need to do to qualify for the scholarship. It's just, it's something they will offer you upon admission. And so for funding law school, that's the best way. I will also say that at my alma mater, they also have additional like full funding opportunities, like uh, endowed scholarships that you can apply for once you've already been admitted. Yeah. Um, but it's usually only awarded to maybe two or three people in the class. Very difficult to get. The best way to get the scholarship is on the front end. And then if you don't get what you want, I also learned that you can negotiate your scholarship. And so when I was, when I got the phone call and got admitted to the school that I ultimately went to, they offered me more money than the school that I had put my seat deposit down on. Now, even though they had offered me more money, the tuition was much higher. So if, if you mm, weighed it out in terms of per yeah. percentages, it probably was a similar percentage, about 50%. But because tuition was $20,000 more per year, like the, the dollar figure was more. And yeah. so I was like... I'm still going to try it. So I took it to them. I was like, look, they're offering me $80,000. Y'all are only offering me 60. Like what can y'all offer me more? And so they gave, came up like $5,000 more, but it still wasn't enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just like kind of make a case and say, yeah. you know, the, they're offering me this, you guys are ranked a little bit lower. This is a more prestigious institution based on like, and they were willing to give me more, like you should be willing to give me more. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that's honestly the best way to get some money for grads for law school. Yeah. So it, it really doesn't hurt to ask. And I like to remind people about that because a lot of folks think, ah, oh, they're going to think that I'm greedy. They're going to rescind the offer. They're going to change their minds. They're going to realize it was the same. Like, no, no, no. If you don't ask, you're not going to get. If you don't ask, you won't find out about what you could have received. Um, 
I I wanted to to talk a little bit more. So, oh, and actually, before I get to that, going back to the funding. So you said mm-hmm. funding it was primarily coming from the program that you were applying to, and from mm-hmm. um, so from that institution. So there are no uh, sources of funding that are outside that are external, like fellowships, scholarships you can apply to. For instance, when you're applying to graduate school, mm-hmm. there are opportunities for you apply for you to apply to these national fellowships at the same time that you're applying to graduate school. Is that not the case in law school? I won't say it's it's not the case. Uh-huh. It's just so for example, I was a scholar for a very large prominent um law firm that had an initiative to increase the pipeline of diverse lawyers in the profession. So they had a program for undergraduate students that you could apply to, and they basically ushered you through the entire law school process, which means they paid for all of my law school applications. They paid for all of my law school visits. They gave me a first year scholarship. I got to go for the summer for like an intensive where I got to meet the partners. They paid for my LSAT prep. So it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely like Mm -hmm. about $10,000 in like, funds that I received through in-kind things right like they didn't like cut me a check for ten thousand dollars they just basically bankrolled the whole application process and walked me through it step by step and as a first generation law student I don't know if I would have made it to law school or made it to the the top like right a top law school without that help because I didn't know what the process was I didn't know they they had a program like as soon as you got into the program there was a timeline and they were like I had a coach and she was like okay you can enroll in class this this semester or next semester for your LSAT class those are your options do you want to take this provider or that provider and do you want a summer or you know a fall course like that was like I didn't have to make any decisions and once I told her like okay I'm having an internship over the summer. I'll take the fall course from this provider. The next day I had my registration in my inbox. (laughs) They paid for it. (laughs) Wait, how did you find out about this program? So it was, I had like a study group in law school or not in law school, in undergrad of like a small cohort of us that I felt like were really bright and all had the goal of going to law school. And we had a mentor who was an older alum of our school and he kind of mentored us and he was a scholar in the program. And so we all got in because of him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they only picked one person from each like school per years for HBCUs. They only picked mm-hmm. one of us and we were all like in successive years. And so we were the scholar nice. for our school every year. And so like two of us got into Harvard, he went to Harvard and I ended up at Emory. So like we all got into like very prestigious law programs, first generation lawyers in our family. And so it was really because of him and that that program that like we we were able to to do that. Um, and so that's how we found it. But um, I don't know how else you would find it because it's not like people like publicize it like you would just have to to know about it or to do some research. But I know that UCLA has a similar program. There are other top law firms in the country that have similar programs. 
um you have a higher shot of getting in if somebody recommends you like it's it's yeah. it's very like like speakeasy kind mm-hmm. of like you have to be tapped type of thing I, anybody who has ever asked me to tap them I do I don't know if they've made it but um lots of law large law firms offer this I think yeah. Sutherland has one Sidley Austin has one um yeah, UCLA has a program. There's Clio that offers a program, but it's it's I say still that the law school is the best shot because the law school scholarship that I received was $80,000, right? Yeah. While I needed the the scholarship that they offered me to get in because I mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to afford a law school a LSAT course to get the LSAT score that I needed to get like it was necessary, but over the course of 10 uh, over the course of three years ten thousand dollars is a literal drop in the bucket mm-hmm. <laughs> for you know what I mean and though that they were offering one of the larger awards I think UCLA program is like five thousand Sutherland's like five thousand so you can like they have these like little bits and pieces here I don't know of any like broad sweeping fellowships like consortiums and things yeah. of that nature for for law school specifically I don't know of any they may exist but I don't know of any that's going to provide you with enough of a enough of a financial incentive to make it worth the time effort energy that it takes to apply to these things um I, I personally think that your best shot at getting funding that's going to actually make a significant impact on your financial obligation is that entry level like merit scholarship yeah that makes a lot of sense thank you for for sharing it I I'm always curious I'm like how do folks find out about these things because I mean I, that's how I found out about my own grad prep program the Mellon program was from you know hearing from other folks and and then applying and <laughs> thankfully getting in uh, so I'm curious what are some things that you wish you knew about law school when you were starting your program that you know now Honestly, I don't think there's anything like I don't know if there's anything that could have prepared me other than just knowing that it's going to be real. Oh, if my mama didn't listen to all my interviews, I'd probably drop an F-bomb right now. But it's real (laughs) hard. (laughs) It's hard AF. And I feel like when you are a talented like student, no, regardless of race right like you mm-hmm. expect to excel in every environment that you're in because yeah. I'm smart I've always been smart like I've been making you know good grades since kindergarten like I'm gonna be dropped into this environment and it's going to be the same thing and for some folks it works out that way for many especially first generation lawyers it does not <laughs> like be prepared to struggle if you don't struggle, consider it a blessing, but be prepared for the struggle. Be prepared not to be at the top of the class. Be be prepared to get get a C or two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because it, it, it it's something that I hadn't experienced and it was very jarring. It was it was very um self-esteem crushing yeah. <laughs> um to be and consider yourself to be a high performer I guess the, the one thing that I would say I wish I had known is that um people will always tell you in law school that your first year grades like they really set the tone for your trajectory mm-hmm. and 
that is true. Like, I didn't want to believe it because my first year grades were trash. <laughs> so like I had to believe there was a pathway forward yeah. for me with these trash grades. Right. Um, But and there is I don't want to say that there's not like there is still hope for you. But if you can do well your first year, it can set you on a trajectory. And I read an article recently that the legal profession is like creating two trajectories Ooh. in one like it's it's like a like a graph right yeah, yeah. One, it's like this right so the people who finish at the top of their class who go to top schools they're getting offered the first year summer associate positions that are $180,000 a year right and so when we think about lawyers and them being rich because mm -hmm. I went to school to be I wanted to be rich I don't know what the rest of these people went for <laughs> right like if we help a few people along the way great but I did not take a vow of poverty to be a lawyer right like this is generally not what you're in the game for and so like those people right who get the big firm jobs the big firm offers who do well their first year get set on a trajectory to pretty much be dang near a millionaire by time you're 30 because when you think about it, you're entering into the workforce at a salary of $180,000 a year plus bonus. So you, you're on path to be set. Now, if you don't hit that first year, it doesn't mean you can't get there. It's just going to take you longer, right? My first job at a law school, I made $50,000 a year. A lot of people ain't having that conversation. Right? See, that's like, what I want to hear about a little bit more because <laughs> I've heard that on the other end of things too, that there's this impression that every single person out of law school gets this really high paying uh, legal job, um, but that's not always the case. And especially for folks who work, you know, depending on what type of practice, depending on where you work, you might be making, like you said, $50,000 a year. Yeah. There are a lot of broke lawyers out there, and I was one of them. I would say that I'm in the seventh year of my practice, and this the sixth year was the first year that I felt financially stable as an, an individual, as a human, and I had two jobs. I still have two jobs, right? I feel like I'm now at a point in my career where if I wanted to just do one job and make a, a good amount of money, I can now. Mm -hmm. And that is my plan moving forward. But generally speaking, if you don't do well, you're not at the top of your class, you somehow... I think that what is the top of your class is different now, because like I said, when I came out, nobody was getting no jobs. So you literally had to be at the 10% of your class to get any type of big firm job back then. I think now if you're at the top 50% of your class and at a top school, you can still get there because firms are hiring like crazy right now. So, right. So it's, it's dependent on the legal market. Mm -hmm. It's dependent on where you went to school. I hate to say it. People are like, yeah. oh, just go to any law school. Yeah. yeah. Where you go to school matters. The grades you get your first year matters. And so if you somehow end up in the bottom 50% of your class or you uh, uh, like aren't hustling, aren't able to get that job, somehow end up at the Joe Schmo School of Law and Truffles and you end up at a lower paying job, you could end up making $50,000, $60,000 a year. And so- that sets you at a lower trajectory, right? Because in your next job, even if you're making 20% more, now you're making $75,000 a year, right? Yeah, yeah. And then so then even, okay, I, I get a little more at the next job. Now I'm making $90,000 a year, right? So you're still 
three years in, maybe three promotions in or two job changes in, right? You're at 90, whereas your counterpart started at twice that first year. So by the time they hit their third year, they're already looking at quarter of a million dollars without bonus potential, right? Because usually the jobs where you make $75,000 a year, you ain't getting no daggone bonus. (laughs) You know what I mean? You're lucky if you're getting a... um, health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't have a 401k even. I didn't have a pension. I didn't get a 401k. Like I didn't get any additional benefits other than my paycheck, right? And so it put me on a path where I am significantly behind my contemporaries. And so in terms of like now, like now I can command what a typical 7th year attorney is making, but my counterparts have been making that for the last 6 mm-hmm. years. They have that. And then when you do the math of all that, (laughs) that you, you know, that there was, there was that potential to make all of that in that time. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money (laughs) to lose. Even having the 401k benefits. Like I said, Mm -hmm. this last year was the first year I ever had a 401k and where my employer provided matching. So if you were maxing out your 401k for those last seven (sighs) years with an employer match, plus the increase, right? So my uh, wealth, my assets as a person, like, yeah, now I have the potential and the ability to command the earning power, but I've missed out on six years of wealth building. So that's why the trajectory goes like this. Like eventually that compound interest is not (laughs) working in your favor because you, yeah. You almost never catch up. And so that's something to consider. Like I said, I think that they say that most lawyers around years eight to 10 end up making about the same because the profession values experience. Mm -hmm. So once you've gotten the experience, you can say, okay, all 10th year associates, you know, are probably going to be able to make around the same, but 10th year associate that was on the partner track from day one is now a millionaire and you're still in the hole. (laughs) <laughs> hmm. And you haven't even accounted for paying back student loans, which also account uh, or accrue interest and grow exponentially. Ugh, I don't want to think about these things. But, <laughs> well, I but so true. I don't yeah. talk about student loans because I was very fortunate in that I didn't have them. So since I was a Division One athlete in undergrad, I got a full scholarship to undergrad. I got um almost a full scholarship to law school, and then. I was able to cover the rest out of pocket. I was living like in a a shack. (laughs) That's the other thing that people don't tell you, like, because I my parents really didn't want me to take out loans. And Mm -hmm. so I was living in a 400 square foot apartment with my boyfriend at the time. Uh, You know what I mean? Like very uh, not the high life at all. And it was a struggle and we were eating popcorn and apples for dinner sometimes, but I didn't have to take out the loan. So I'm very grateful that my parents like pushed me to just take the L in the interim because I didn't have to worry about loans. But like if you don't take out loans, people assume you don't because you have money and like you're just mm-hmm. bankrolling. Right. Like you could just be like struggling, too, <laughs> but just struggling on the front end instead of the back end. So luckily I don't have the loans, but I do know that that is a consideration, huge one for people as well in determining like what they can afford and the affordability of life. And it's a struggle. I mean, I'm glad that that you mentioned that too, because 
like you said, there were sacrifices that you made in order to not have the student loan. So yes, you got the scholarships, but then you had to <laughs> get the merit scholarships in order, you know, and then and then after that, like making the decisions of your lifestyle, what you're going to do to make sure that you, it's really easy to take out loans. It's too easy to do it. Um, yeah. but it's, it's, it's important to consider the numbers and to consider the outcome and to consider what, like you said, I'm glad that you mentioned, I, I was not aware of the two tracks. Like if you don't do well, mm -hmm. your first year that could really, really set you off on a track that will take you a lot longer for wealth building. And that's important, especially as a woman of color, when we're already, you know, there's already a huge salary discrepancy, uh, between, women of color, black women, Latinas, all, you know, in these industries. And when you compare it to the dollar, the dollar potential of like what a white male will earn in these spaces, um, it's important to try to kind of get a head start in as many ways as possible financially um, to set ourselves up and our future generations up for, for success and for financial wealth building. So um, I was going to ask you about the Benefits and challenges of law school. I think you've already started to share a little bit about that. Um, but I'm wondering about the distinct challenges that you face, if you don't mind sharing, or that other, like that you, from your observations, like what are some of the challenges that women of color face in law school? Um, and I, I have a feeling a lot of them will be similar <laughs> to grad school, will be similar to just living in... The United States and to just being a person of color, being a woman, being a woman of color um, in this world. Um, yes. But but specifically in law school, are there any specific types of things that, that come to mind? So the distinction that I want to make about law school is that the, the I want to say, challenges that I faced were not necessarily gendered or like associated with ethnicity more so like class and economic mm. status <laughs> the 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 legal profession does not favor those of any race or any gender that did not come from a particular echelon of the society and that's just it period if you have parents that are rich you're going to be better off <laughs> like if you have parents that are well connected or family members that are well connected you're going to have an easier go of it mm -hmm. if you're not the first gen in your family to be at law school you're going to have an easier go of it I mean if you have and I always tell this story I remember one of my classmates at Emory and she's she's a lovely woman like no shade to her at all right but the first day of school at class, this professor asked us what we did for the summer. This is mm, the first day of question. law school. <laughs> Listen, like we hadn't even set foot at the law school yet, right? Listen, this is the first yeah. day of 1L year. What, what you do over the summer? She was like, oh, I interned at the New York Attorney General's office. And we were like, oh, my God, like, that's so wonderful. Like, that's so prestigious. And the professor was like, well, how'd you end up doing that? And she was like, oh, my father is the attorney general of New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's going to make it an easier go of it for you. And I know. So when I had my first internship um, at the, I won't say where I had it, but it was at mm -hmm. a very large 
sports company. I was able to intern at some very large sports companies when I was in law school because I was scrappy. Like <laughs> I was scrappy. I was like, I, I want to work in sports. And so I ended up getting that opportunity a, because I was division one athlete. I wrote a really good, you know, personal statement and everything like that. And I had at the time an old boyfriend who was working in the mailroom. And I was like, yo, <laughs> I know you have access to the directory for every single person at that company. I need you to give me the email addresses and phone numbers for these three people in the legal department. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this man worked in the mailroom, right? Like he, he, he knew nobody, but he was like, yo, I got you. So I called these people every day <laughs> until they answered. I emailed them. Finally, the chief legal officer, who was also black, agreed to meet with me. Right. And so he was like, I love your energy. Please let me know if there's anything I could do to help you out. Right. So I went through the process of interviewing. So before I went to law school, I was a, a publicist and I was in PR. I went through the process. A lot of these uh like internship programs, they have interns in lots of departments. Legal is just one department. And so I went through the process. And even though I was in law school, I applied for the legal kind of fellowship. They were like, we're going to offer you the one in PR. And I was like, but that don't even make no dang old sense. Like, I'm trying to be a lawyer. But I took it because it was an opportunity, right? I took it because it was an opportunity. But I called the legal department because I had their numbers. I was like, hey, yo, if there's anything y'all could do for me, like, I really need to be in legal. Like, can I work on some products for y'all? Like, anything. Like, I really need to be in legal. And they were like, we'll try to help you out. So because of the people in the legal department who I had been, like, harassing, they were, like, accepted a second intern. But the nice. person that they accepted was a white female from a very privileged background whose father was the CEO of a very mm. large foundation in the same industry and was very of, of that business was very well connected. And this was a diversity program. And I'm like, how in God's <laughs> name did they feel like if there was only one, it should have been her over me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not that she wasn't brilliant, but if this is a diversity program, right. And so I was, I was like blown away when I got there and I saw like who they had chosen first and who I had to beg, borrow and steal to get in. Right. But that was the benefit for her. Yeah. She had connections. Her family had money. They had wealth. They had access. And so she was able to get an opportunity that I had to beg, borrow and steal for. <laughs> That's the unfortunate you know? reality, actually, that, yeah. you know, the population that has benefited the most from these diversity opportunities, is, you know, are predominantly white women. And now you mentioning, we hear people say this all the time, that it's not what you know, it's who you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, over and over and over again. And you sharing these examples are it's 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 hard to come to terms with it until you witness it and then you realize this is what they meant this is why I need to put myself out there and you did <laughs> I mean it worked out whether you like, have I... to get them from the mailroom or whatever you need to do <laughs> listen like this man had a whole fiance at this time I was like look 
like I know we haven't spoken in years but I need you to do me this solid yeah. and he was like more than happy to do it and and I want to say like you know it made me a stronger person and it did right like it's made me incredibly resilient tenacious but I don't want to be resilient and tenacious mm -hmm. I want my mama to make a phone call and get me a job too like that would be fantastic <laughs> that just unfortunately isn't like my story or my reality mm -hmm. but it's, it's like no shade against her like if I had the connections and the access I would absolutely use it too so I'm not mad at her for doing that that's what you yeah. should do but I mean when we you do are... this with the people we know we help them out we support each other right so I I, I get what you where you're coming from when you say that like no yeah no offense to her like she had no. the connections and opportunities that a lot of us just don't happen to have yeah yeah. And so she should rely on that. Like her parents work hard so that she could have the access that she had. It's just that when you are the first to penetrate a space, you're the first. There is no one before you. There is no access. There is no connections. Like you're literally uh, one of my friends who came on my show. She said, like, some people just have the door and they just get to walk through it without mm -hmm. considering that there are some of us who got to build the door build the frame put the door in the frame and then we gotta walk through it <laughs> maybe we've never walked through a door we're scared too <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so we all walking yeah. through doors but you don't know how much somebody else had to do in order for their door to even be exist let alone right. open right so in light of everything you've shared about about your your own experiences if you could do this all over again, is there anything you would do differently with your trajectory, with even going to law school and your, you know, what your career as it stands today? Um, I know you mentioned there's a two tracks <laughs> and then you mentioned, actually, you don't need to become a lawyer too, or you don't need to go to law school to go in this, in this career track. Well, I think that honestly, I wouldn't change anything because everything that has happened has made me who I am today. And so, you know, every, everything that happens to you is, is a chapter in your story and a part of your journey. And so I feel like maybe if I hadn't had that experience, there might be a part of me that's different now, or right. maybe I would be less empathetic now, or maybe I wouldn't be able to relate to my students in the way that I do, or maybe I wouldn't be able to relate to my clients in the way that I do. Because one thing that I find that I, it annoys the crap out of me is that a lot of lawyers, especially those who come from privileged backgrounds, they have very little sympathy or empathy in the way that they relate to their clients, especially ones that come from indigent backgrounds or, you know, and that like bugs me. Like, don't talk mm -hmm. to people like that. Like, you have no idea what this person went through to be in the position that they're in right now and the level of, or the lack of empathy. And I understand why there's a lack of empathy because it's hard for you to understand or relate to somebody if you haven't been through something. Like, I've been through some things, right? So yes. when I sit here and I'm looking at my client, I'm like, I know what you're going through. I've been a defendant. I've been a client. I've had, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I am going to help shepherd you through this very difficult part of your journey in a way that is human 
and that makes you feel warm, secure, and protected, like I got you, right? Because I needed somebody to be that for me when I was going through some of the lowest moments in my journey as an attorney, as a woman, as a black woman, all of that. So no, I wouldn't, I mean, could it have been a little bit easier? Yeah, but would I maybe have been a different person? Probably. So I guess it was just part of my journey. Right. Thank you. All right. So we're getting close to wrapping up. I am curious. You've already shared so many gems and lots of advice in terms of just, you know, if you're, you know, what what track to go on or um, how to set yourself up for success. But are there any other words of advice you have to share specifically for the first gen folks, the folks who this is, the, they're the first ones in their family considering becoming or considering going to law school or the uh, students of color who, like you said, they, they might, or maybe they're um, working class and they know that they're going in, they're not going to have the advantage of having the family member who has the, the in for them or having the, the income to be able to support them financially. Well, you know, what kind of advice? you have for them or, or closing words as we wrap up the episode um I my biggest advice would be like get yourself a village get yourself a good mentor get yourself a good coach like if that person doesn't exist for you in your family in your close network of childhood friends college friends law school friends seek the person out and lean on them heavily. I can't tell you how many, because before I was a professor, I was a mentor at my alma mater for other black students. I'm not even saying brown, black students, <laughs> because those are the students that spoke to me. And I, when I was a mentor, you know, I had students that were sleeping on my couch when they couldn't afford to pay their rent, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. I had students that come to me like, I, I couldn't afford to pay my cell phone bill. Like, can I just come and hang out and chill with your Wi-Fi? I got you, right? You know what I mean? Like little things like that. I used to host uh, family dinners for my mentees because like I said, when I was at law school, there were times when I was eating popcorn and apples, like, because that's all I had in my, my pocket. That's all I could afford. Like I would host dinners for them. And as a young attorney, I didn't have any money. Sometimes I was spending my last $60 to make sure my kids could eat. But I was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure my kids can eat, right? Like get somebody in your corner who has been where you've been or is going or is where you want to be and like, re like really develop that relationship. Because as much as I mentor people, like I did that because I had that support and I had people in my corner who were there to usher and shepherd me in and through the profession and I would not have made it and my family I love my family they support me but they've never been where I'm trying to go they don't know what I'm trying to do I could sit down and ask my mama right now I don't think she even knows what I do <laughs> like <laughs> you know my name is a lawyer you know she'd be like negotiating stuff I don't she has no idea what I do and I can't expect her to right? right like I know she loves me she supports me but in order for me to get to where I need to get I need to be able to, to get advice from people who have been where I'm trying to go <laughs> you know who know the landscape who know the players and so especially for people of color I find that 
we are trying to reinvent the wheel every do not yeah. reinvent the freaking wheel like get help <laughs> get help find somebody I had one of my mentees who like had unfortunately not passed the bar and they were like I'm done. I'm I, maybe I'm not meant to be a lawyer. I said, I don't mm. care if I have to pay for put on my credit card you to sit for the bar again. You're not moving on from this phase of your life without bar passage. And they had to take it two more times. But when they passed, they called me and was like, I would not have had the foresight to continue on if you hadn't pushed me. Like, I'm like, when you have kids and you have a wife, you're not going to want to take no daggone bar. Like, you know what I mean? Like, do not delay this. He was like, oh, I don't I don't need a bar. I can do something else. But what if five years from now, an opportunity of your dreams comes about and it requires a bar license and you ain't got it? Right. Like you need to be prepared for the opportunities when they come. And if you had just said, I'm going to take a, a JD preferred job, I'm not going to get my bar license and your dream job comes about. You're not prepared to meet that opportunity. Now you scrambling, trying to take a bar. You ain't even studied for nothing in 10 years. Like who trying to do that? No, get you a mentor someone and some people who really care about you, who can pick you up, who can two finger tap you and say, girl, you effing up. <laughs> do better you're about to ruin this opportunity because I've had people do that to me too you about to you about to mess this up <laughs> like get your ish together somebody who's going to be real with you honest with you care about you and like push you to where you're trying to get to if only there was a, a directory <laughs> that I could be like go here find your match <laughs> get to go because <laughs> it's I mean I, I I know it's true finding a village getting a mentor or get or a femtor that is so critical it can be hard to to put yourself out it can be hard to find like-minded individuals it can be hard to find people who look like you when you happen to be the first of many um, or among the first but it's true if you don't if you don't try, if you don't bother, if you don't invest in these relationships, then it's going to be a lot harder. So thank you for reminding us about the importance of a village and the importance of mentorship. Well, thank well, you. You are the femtor. You're the femtor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm like femtorship is critical because I know that my experience was I didn't always have the great, I did have some good, some good mentors and mentors, but there's a lot that I wish that I had been told. There was a lot that I wish that I had known. And that's why I bring guests like you to shed light on the stuff, on the hidden curriculum, the stuff that people don't tell you about admissions, about the experience, about getting to that next step in your career in your life. So yes. Thank you so much, Sydney, for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciate you sharing a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of wisdom, experience, and all of your insights today. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, here are three ways you can support the show. The first is to make sure you're subscribed and leave a review of the podcast. If you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, you become eligible for a free half hour coaching session with me. Yes, that's right. One free session. Once you leave a review, you can email me a screenshot and I'll send you a link to sign up. The second way to show your love is to get yourself a copy of my free 
15-page grad school fam touring kit, which includes resources on research, organization, grad school, and career prep. Go to gradschoolfemtouring.com slash kit to get it today. The third and last way to support my show is to follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok with the handle at gradschoolfemtouring. Thanks again, and until next time.